Uh, welcome to another episode of ICU Doc Talk. Um, thanks for joining me. Uh, Happy New Year's as well, 2023. I haven't been, a, it's been a bit since I've been able to record an episode just with, you know, life and the holidays and all that stuff. But uh, I thought I would, I had a little time to get back to it. So welcome back and thanks for waiting for, uh, you know, for a new episode. Um, today I'm just going to answer questions. Uh, there's a lot of uh, questions that people ask me on different platforms and I of course cannot get to all the questions but uh, uh, I think I would just spend a whole episode let's just do a grab bag I'm just gonna look at questions people have asked me through email and through TikTok and Instagram and let's just go through it and sometimes I don't answer questions because I don't they're, they're hard to answer but I think I'll even meaning it's hard to explain concepts um, but I'll even I'll just answer whatever I see I'm just gonna go through the list here let's and I'll just rattle it off so let's do it all right, first question is from Jane, last name withheld, who sent me an email. Um, Jane sent me a very nice email saying how much uh, he or she enjoys my podcast um, and shared some other information here. But um, here, here's a question that, they answer, that, they, that this person asks Jane. Do doctors have a responsibility to advocate for um, better nursing staffing? After all, RN staffing affects the care patients can receive and the outcome, the length of stay, and the complications. I do not think adequate staffing is the MD's responsibility alone. RNs need to be more professionally organized and advocate for this change. In other words, um, it is the RN's main responsibility to advocate this, as Jane says, but it wouldn't hurt for MDs to concur that RN staffing is inadequate to um, hospital boards, etc. I am so tired of hospitals claiming the old adage of, quote, patient-centered care, and quote, evidence-based practice, when at the very core of this is adequate staffing and adequately trained staffing, uh, Jane adds, to take the best care of these patients. Research shows that all RN-staffed hospitals result in better patient outcomes, reduced length of stay, fewer complications, and decreased mortality. Um, Jane also mentions that uh, they read American Sickness, which is a book I recommend on here, and, and they recommended it. it. That is a good book if you haven't... Uh, okay, so... Just let me just kind of back it out, talking about RN sta- staffing. And I, I say it a lot, and I think I've said it in this podcast that the people who actually take care of you in the hospital are nurses, right? So I mean, there's lots of healthcare. I, I know that's kind of a loaded statement. There's a lot, you know. There's you could easily refute that. There's things you can say, but I, I what I mean is the people that are actually running thing, you know, patient care, that are actually on the ground, you know, boots on the ground, whatever, that are actually affecting clinical change, um, you know, physically affecting it and implementing change are the nurses. And the, the, the quality of care, if the quality of nursing care is poor, uh, uh, what I, which is definitely affected by staffing ratios, then it doesn't matter how good you're, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about inpatient care here, right, mostly. Um, it doesn't matter how good your doctors are or, your, you know, your nurse practitioners or, or whatever. If you, if you don't have proper adequate nursing care to implement a care plan, then the, then the care suffers and that's bad for the patient. So, so I, I think Jane brings up a good point that yes, of course it's like the nursing administration and nurses responsibility to advocate for this most. Yeah, of course, but everybody should be advocating for safe uh, nursing ratios, right? Particularly in the ICU. Unsafe nursing, nursing ratios can result in harm and death of patients. 
because when nurses are have too much too much of a workload, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of detail that happens in the ICU. And if they are over encumbered with, with unsafe staffing ratios, patient care can suffer and harm can 100% happen to patients. So to answer Jane's questions, uh, main question, do doctors have a responsibility to advocate for better nursing staffing? Of course they do. I think doctors do have that responsibility. I don't know how much responsibility, what part of the job that is supposed to be. And honestly, I'm kind of ignorant myself of how to even go about advocating for that. There is much more that I can do as a doctor to advocate for better, rather than just complaining, right? Complaining's fun. Uh, you know, venting and complaining and, you know, it's a, it's a nice therapeutic thing to do to complain. And I'm, I, I can complain about things, but I don't think that's going to be very effective in advocating for, um, you know, better nurse staffing. So I actually don't know what I can do, um, you know, besides getting more involved in uh, various nursing committees, uh, uh, the various committees that are in hospital that are in charge of staffing. I don't know what I can do um, as someone who works at a, at a major academic hospital because I haven't really looked into it, to be honest. Um, so on it, email me and tell me what I can do and I'll share it here. You know, I, I'm a little ignorant about what it is that I can do. So, um, you know, you have a, if you're interested in this topic, why don't you email me? You got, you have my ear and, we, and I can talk about it, about it more. All right. Um, let's move on to some other questions. There's a bunch on TikTok. Uh, the Q and A's. Okay. I'm just going to go through these. I, I haven't even read these. I'm reading through the first time and I will, I will answer them. This is from someone on TikTok, uh, Vega, v- Vegas Pecan, username. How, do, how did you prepare yourself in school slash residency to stand out for your critical care fellowship applications? Um, so, okay, let me just break the myth that you have to do research to stand out. So I did not do research, okay? I did like a little tiny bit of research in medical school. I was terrible at it, like bench research. I did some research about breast cancer, 3D modeling of mammary tissues and breast cancer, and I was awful at it. Uh, I spent like a whole summer doing it. It was I like came up with all this data and it was all crap. <laughs> and I remember my uh, the program director. She sat down <laughs> of the lab to go over my data, and she was so thoroughly unimpressed with the way I had presented that she had nothing she had nothing but silence for me and then just walked away <laughs> and that was her feedback about all the work i had done for like four or five months <laughs> that was it it just it never went anywhere after that because it was just bad um so <laughs> anyway so i my my point is that was all the research that i had under my name i didn't have a single publication in research or anything like that i think a lot of medical students and residencies worry uh, residents worry about having uh, research on their CV or their application to, so that they stand out. Now you could definitely that that can help you stand out for sure. Particularly if you uh, you know if you're public if you're published in a, a journal and you actually have some good research to talk about, that can definitely like make you stand out. But you don't have to have that. You don't have to have that to be. So I mean, you got to be a well-rounded candidate. You know, whether you're a med med student and you're looking for residency or you're a resident and you're looking for a fellowship, and different residencies are, and fellowships have varying, um, you know, competitiveness. So I'll just, I'm just nip that in the bud. You don't need to stress that you have, that you have, you know, some research. If, if research is not your thing, I'll tell you this, okay? So I, I was interviewing, I interviewed for um, fellowship at Stanford for uh, critical care fellowship 
and I was there during the interview, and I remember I had, a, I was interviewed with someone who was very, uh, very well, you know, uh, researched person, uh, meaning you know they had like a lot of research under their name and very well published. Um, and they were like, so you know, tell me, you know, about research. Is research your thing? Blah, blah, you know. And I was just like, no, I don't have research, and I don't like to do research, and I don't plan on doing, uh, you know, a whole lot of research. <laughs> Uh, you know, just being honest, not BSing, and I and it, it, it that went over well. Now you, that might be a risky thing to do in a, in, but I, I honestly think you should just be your authentic self in an interview as much as possible, um, so people know that what they're getting. And I think that person appreciate. I I think maybe I could be wrong, but I think from the interview, I think they appreciated my candidness and like, hey, research not my thing. And you know what? If you are looking, I didn't say this, but it was like the subtext was, hey, if you're looking for someone that's done a lot of research, I'm not your candidate and you should go with somebody else, right? I'm not a good fit for your program if you're looking for a research heavy person. Anyway, so, okay, so what what do you think makes you stand out? So, you know, writing a personal statement, there's, you know, a personal statement, I think is, is, is a, I don't think you have to have a perfect personal statement. I've read a lot of personal statements from uh, lots of medical students and residents. And I will tell you this, um, people in medicine are bad at writing. <laughs> I've read a lot of personal statements and most of them are not very good. Um, and that's not their fault. It's just, I don't think there's a whole, there's not a, always a lot of crossover with being a skilled writer and being someone who's medically minded. Um, so I've given lots of feedback about personal statements. So, and I've read a lot of bad personal statements. I think, I don't think a bad personal statement necessarily hurts you. I think a good personal statement can help you. I, I, th- I think a good personal statement doesn't make you a shoe in by any, by any means. The point of a personal statement, this is it, okay, is to be memorable to the people deciding if they want to pick you. That's the point of a personal statement. It's not to impress them. Um, so if you're writing a personal statement and you are repeating stuff that's in your CV or your application, that's bad, in my opinion. Um, for one thing, it comes off as bragging even though you don't intend it, you know, if like halfway through your personal statement, you're like, Oh, I was in the Peace Corps. And then I did this and this, and you're just rattling things off that you've done. Um, that's that you shouldn't put stuff like that in your personal statement. For one thing, it's repetitive. Your, your, the rest of your application already has that information. So that person reading your personal statement already has that information and it comes off as arrogant. It does. It does. It, it, it doesn't mean you're an arrogant person, but it comes off as arrogant and like that you're bragging. So I don't think you should be doing those things in a personal statement. My, a personal statement, I think the perfect, per, perfect personal statement should be a single story. It should have a beginning and a middle and an end. It should be a story. It should be easy to follow. It should be engaging, and it should be not complicated at all. It should be about one thing. Um, I gave some feedback to someone who was applying to medical school, and they were, they were an impressive candidate. They had, like, great scores. And their personal statement was had so many elements to it. Um, they talked about their daughter that was born with a genetic deficiency and then a bunch of things, boom, 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 just so many things. My feedback to that person was, and they didn't get into med school their first year. My feedback was just make this about your daughter. Just make your personal statement just about your daughter. And they did. Uh, now I don't, and that person got a medical school. I don't think it's because their personal statement was better. I think it's just because they applied in a more timely manner. But, uh, and that, that per, their personal statement was excellent after they made that change. So anyway, your personal statement can help you. Uh, it can also hurt you if you say something really stupid in there. But I wouldn't fret too much about a personal statement because there's a lot of bad ones out there. <laughs> and most most committees are reading a lot of bad personal statements. <laughs> but it doesn't mean you're a bad candidate. So I so what okay what does set yourself apart? I think authenticity. 
I think, uh, so getting to, you know, I, I think being, being authentic as much as you can in how you present yourself to a committee through your application process. And then if you're invited for an interview, just being yourself, being as authentic as possible, uh, being honest, because, and uh, that's how you connect with people in an interview, right? So I think I, one of my strengths is through education. Like I got pretty, I mean, my grades were pretty good in college and I was a pretty average medical student, but I think I interviewed well. And I think it's just because I was just laid back and um, just, you know, as authentic as possible. That's my perception. Maybe I wasn't, right? This is all through my own perception. Maybe I wasn't that great. <laughs> Some of that was interviewed, but I, I think that I was. And um, like the, uh, another in a fellowship program that I interviewed at, and the fellowship program that I that I chose to go to, I the the interview I had with uh, my personal statement was about my dad who was dying of lung of a lung disease, and so that made me memorable, right? And the first thing the program director of that program asked me when he sat down first met he said, "How's your dad?" Um, so and, so he he knew me, I was memorable to him, and and we had a really really great chat. It wasn't even an interview; it was just a great interaction between two people. Um, and that's the program I went to for my fellowship, which was an amazing program. And I had an, I had an amazing time. In, and I have so much respect for that person to this day that I still talk to. Um, so I don't know if that answered the question, but we'll leave that at that. All right, next question is uh, from Kate Cisneros, TikTok. Thoughts or advice for someone who is allergic to gas anesthesia? Bronchial tubes closed as an infant, now 30. So this is a good question. Uh, this is a good example of a question that that I don't typically answer because it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and I'm not trying to be derogatory towards this person who's asking this. So they said they're allergic to gas anesthesia. No one's really allergic to gas anesthesia. Uh, that's, I've never heard of that, uh, to anesthetic gases. Uh, you know, to the typical ones that we use, like sevoflurane. Unless, unless they have malignant hyperthermia, then of course they're allergic. Um, and I would assume this person would be talking about that because if you have malignant hyperthermia, that's usually you lead with that. Um, so it's a confusing question to me. And then bronchial tubes closed as an infant. Um, I don't know what a, I don't know what this person means by bronchial tube. And as they're closed as an infant, and now they're 30, maybe they, I don't know if they had a lung resection. I, the reason I, I think this is a good question to talk about is like, um, it's so hard to translate what people mean when they're trying. When, you know, this person obviously, I'm not saying they don't have a legitimate question to ask. They, they do. Um, but But the it's hard to understand what people are talking about a lot of times. Um, so this person saying they have bronchial tubes that are closed, that doesn't make any sense to me. And then being allergic to gas anesthesia doesn't make any sense to me too. I could sit down with this person and ask them a little bit more questions and I could probably figure out precisely what they are talking about, which is, which is something real. I'm sure this happens. This comes up all the time when trying to give, like when I'm hearing about someone th second or third, story that this something happened to in a hospital and they said that this happened and this happened and that it was such an outrage and it's like ah it's so hard when you're not there and you don't like you don't have someone's medical chart open and the confusion about language and how we basically in medicine speak another language is so hard to understand sometimes and uh so that's why you know it's very difficult to give advice or to answer questions when you don't have all of the information um at your disposal and that you you and i usually assume you know, people are, are doing their due diligence, like a medical healthcare worker for that person is doing their due diligence, and that there's just something I'm not understanding. So, I mean, to answer this patient questions, I, I can't answer the question. So, advice for someone who's allergic to gas anesthesia. Well, if, 
I guess what I can answer is if, if you truly are allergic to gas anesthesia, like you have malignant hyperthermia, which is a very deadly disease, you don't need a, you don't, we don't have to give you gas. You don't have to have gas for any anesthetic. Um, we can give you um, IV anesthesia. We can give you continuous infusions of anesthetic that keep you asleep. Easy. That's an easy thing to do. So there's not, that's not an obstacle. If someone has a problem with gas anesthesia, um, and we do that all the time. So uh, sometimes we'll just, and that's called a TIVA, T-I-V-A, a total intravenous anesthetic, um, where we don't give gas. And we often do that for people that have really severe nausea because we, because gas anesthesia, uh, the volatile anesthetics can cause nausea. So we do that routinely. So for this person, I would say, um, ask for a TIVA. Just say, I don't want a gas anesthetic. And most anesthesiologists and most surgeries that you have to have, that can definitely, that can be, you can be, it can be accommodated for. All right, on to the next question. Uh, this is from TikTok by username Adelmum. How concerned are you intubating patients with OSA? OSA is obstructive sleep apnea. So it's always, I always want to know if a patient has OSA, um, you know, if they have sleep apnea, because, uh, so intubating, approaching someone with OSA with intubating, intubation. So OSA is extremely common, right? Um, many, 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 many people have it. So it's always good to know it. It doesn't make me, um, cons- I'm not like overly concerned, like, oh my gosh, they have OSA, how are we going to get their airway? It's usually f- fairly straightforward. When someone, what I'm worried about is when they're waking up, we take the reading tube out and they obstruct. So we give them, you know, we give a patient a bunch of sedation and they're sedated when they're waking up. And, uh, and then they go to the recovery unit and then they can have a bunch of obstruction and they can get hypercarbic, right? Their PCO2 can go up, they can get hypoxic. Um, and they can be very obstructive. So, so I want to know if does this how BiPAP dependent is this person? CPAP? Do they do they wear CPAP at home? Do they need it after the surgery? Um, and then are they going to be difficult to to bag mask? Like, am I going to have trouble ventilating this person with it before I put it in a breathing tube? Um, uh, you know, do I need extra effort to put it, put it in? It's not something that makes me like you know freak out obviously because it's so common but it's definitely something i want to be aware of and i'm more thoughtful of um and that i may need to have a little bit more effort a little more forethought as i'm approaching their airway to to put in a breathing tube but honestly it's so common i barely even notice it anymore because so many people have obstructive sleep apnea all right next question is from uh sarah la 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 lu just experienced my first quote awake code blue can you explain why or how this happened patient presented with chest pressure on exertion thinking a triple a rupture so this patient this person's talking about an awake code um and i think what they're talking about is as they're coding the patient as you're doing chest compressions there's this phenomena and it's it's rare i don't see it all the time but you when someone goes into cardiac arrest um their heart stops right and so blood flow stops and you immediately, you know, go, the person immediately goes unconscious and begins to die. Chest compressions literally pump the heart. Um, there might be a little bit of confusion with that. I think sometimes non-medical people think chest compressions are to restart the heart, uh, which it, they may have that effect by thumping on the heart. But the whole point of doing chest compressions is to act as the heart, to manually compress the heart with your hands um, from outside the chest with your palms as you're, as you're pressing inward. Um, so as you're doing that, you are now pumping the heart, not as good as the heart would, but you are, it is pumping the heart and it's pumping the organs. And one of those organs is the brain. So sometimes we will see as we 
pump someone's heart. We do chest compressions. We're starting to perfuse their brain. And when you perfuse the brain, they can start to wake up and they can start to fight you off. And what you see even more, what, what's even more eerie about the situation that can happen is they fight you off. And as soon as they get the per, you know, they get the person off that's getting chest compressions, then they immediately go back into cardiac arrest and they, you know, basically, you know, kind of quote die, uh, they go back into cardiac arrest and they fall. And it, some, it, honestly, it, it look, I don't mean any disrespect, but it can look like a marionette puppet suddenly collapsing. Like, like someone is, you know, someone has like a puppet, a marionette is a puppet and then the puppet master like lets go and they just collapse. That's what it looks like. And then you get back on the chest and you perfuse, you know, you and then they wake up again and they fight you off. And um, it can be very, very alarming to people in the room that haven't seen it before. And sometimes these people eventually die. We let them go. And it can be very alarming because it was like, well, they were awake and they were fighting us off. And it's like, well, but that, but we weren't able to reserve, reverse the thing that was killing them. So we eventually just had to, to you know, stop. Um, so, I mean, that's why it happens. That's why you can get this phenomenon um, that, it, you know, it looks like that. All right, let's just go down the list. Uh, this is a question from Patrick Highsmith6. Hi, my name is Rick Highsmith. Is there anesthesia risk? What? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, I don't know what that guy, I, I don't know what the person's saying. Next question. Uh, okay, this is from Jen Cupcakes 88. What happens when a healthy 25 to 35 year old age has an accidental fentanyl overdose? Seems to be such a huge problem among us. Yeah, so I'm no, I'm not the expert on the fentanyl, uh, you know, epidemic that's going on. Epidemiological, I don't know how deep. I haven't looked into it myself. You know, in the community in the United States, I, I know it's happening. The the news sensationalizes things, and I haven't done my due diligence to looking beyond what the you know sensational news headlines are to to really know what the numbers are on the fentanyl epidemic. Not, a, I'm not denying that it's a thing that's not happening. I just don't know the extent. Anyway, this person's asking what happens when a healthy has an accident. A healthy person has an accidental fentanyl overdose. So it's this, what it's the same thing that happens to anybody that has an opiate overdose. Opiate overdose causes respiratory depression. That is what someone dies of when they die of overdose. Uh, if they die of overdose, doesn't overdose doesn't mean you die, but it means you your opiates make you stop caring about breathing. That's what it is. Uh, someone can also aspirate, vomit, and they can they can that can also be deadly to them as well. But fent fentanyl is an opiate, just like anything else, just like heroin, just like morphine. Um, it's very fast-acting. It's very powerful. Um, and that's that's what's happening, and it can happen to anybody. It doesn't matter if you're healthy. It doesn't matter if, if you're young or old. But that's what, an, that's what an overdose is doing. It's making you not care about breathing, and you stop breathing, and you get hypercarbic and then hypoxemic, and then you can, you can die from that. Um, next question... Let's see. This is from Y. Vovanderhoek. Are there times you found the procedure proposed as risky and refused and on ethical grounds because you did not see it to be the best patient's best interest? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not really a proceduralist, right? I'm not a surgeon. I don't do a whole lot of procedures. Well, I do line placements. But the thing that one thing that I do do that is unique is I put, I put people on ECMO, right? I put, I put these big catheters in someone's groin. Um, typically over their neck and it's basically a heart lung bypass machine and it pumps blood around for them and it uh, um, you know it's to save someone's life that's very sick so have I ever refused to do this on ethical grounds 
Yes, definitely, definitely. Here, I'll, here's one example. So I was called down to the emergency department. So sometimes when a patient comes in and they're resuscitating the patient and they're doing chest compressions, sometimes the emergency, the ER physician will call me as the ECMO attending to come down and assess the patient for ECMO candidacy. And I will go down and I will look at the patient. So there's, we had a patient um, who seemed fairly young. They were actively doing chest compressions. Um, maybe the patient is in their 30s, could have been. And the report that I that we received from EMS is that the, the patient choked on a sandwich and had aspirated it and went into arrest, and it was unwitnessed arrest. And But then they were found, and chest compressions started, and they were brought in. And chest compressions had to be going on for maybe 45 minutes or something like that. So I said no to putting that patient on ECMO. And I have to do that often to say no to ECMO. Through COVID pandemic, through the height of the Omicron and Delta, um, I was getting consults all the time for putting patients on ECMO. And I said no more often than I said yes. And there's many, many, many reasons to say no for ECMO that are a little too complex. I should probably do a whole episode about it right now. Um, and it sounds cruel, right? Just no, and, and I leave, right? I say, this patient, is, I announce to the room, you know, in this case, this patient is not a candidate for ECMO. And I usually say why. I say because it's an unwitnessed arrest, um, and it's a PEA arrest, a, a, a pulseless electrical activity arrest. Uh, and the reason is because the patient probably had, does not have a good chance of meaningful neurological recovery. And you do not put patients on ECMO that are going to be brain dead or have a stroke. You don't do that because there's no reason to because they're going to they're going to be dead anyway. Um, so I usually announce why, and then I leave. And I'm done, and I don't honestly don't think about it again, you know, too much. Um, ECMO is a resource intensive uh, uh, thing that we use, and we have to be judicious with how we use it. And we never we don't want to get in a situation where we put someone on ECMO and they don't have a way to get off of it. Um, that that creates all sorts of new ethical conundrums because we're basically keeping a body alive that shouldn't be alive. And then the family is conflicted. The family doesn't know what to do. They can feel like they're killing their loved one. It gets very complicated very fast. And sometimes up front, we need to just say no, and we move on. And that is just, that is a reality. That is a reality. So we, we are very selective with, the, with our ECMO criteria. And there's a lot more nuance to it than I'm just saying uh, with that case. But yes, I have declined to do things for ethical grants. Uh, another person asks, CPH 706, where did you do your training? That is not a question. I get that question all the time, and I will never answer that question because I do not want to give personal information about myself. Uh, next question by Mitchell Cook, 095. Um, are you familiar with LIDCO monitors? They measure hemodynamics. I would love to know more about cardiac output, cardiac index, systemic vas vascular resistance, systemic vascular resistance index, stroke volume, stroke volume index, et cetera, how it guides treatment. So it's a great question. Um, so, I, you know, I work in a cardiac ICU, and we use these monitors all the time. Um, um, and I've used Lidco and our uh, Flow Track, and these are monitors designed. They 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 use the contours of an arterial line blood pressure transducer to to report um, a, a cardiac index or cardiac output. Um, cardiac output, if you're familiar, is the stroke time time someone's heart rate. A cardiac output is a good indicator or in a cardiac index is you, it's a cardiac in, uh, output, um, but it's normalized to body surface area. 
So it's it's more normalized. It's not a raw number. So you know, a normal cardiac index would be like you know two to four, two and a half to four, something like that. Two to two and a half, two and a half to five. Less than two and a half, in my opinion, is you know a little bit low. And we I do use these monitors. I used to you know we use uh, PA catheters and thermal dilution to monitor someone's cardiac index because it helps guide our therapies. Oh, you know, does this person still need mechanical circulatory devices? Do they still need an impella? Do they still need epinephrine? What happens if we turn off the milrinone? What happens if we do this? And it helps guide our therapy along with other things, right? You can calculate a thick. You can you can look at your lactate. There's many. The whole point, I think, with a Lidco monitor or flow check monitor, for one thing, they're not always reliable. It has to be taken in context of what's going on with the patient. If it if it if it looks like it's trending with the rest of your stuff, then it's reliable and I use it. But they're not always reliable in every single patient that you use them on. Um, so you just need to be careful and use them cautiously and not hang your hat on one value from like a Lidco or float, float track monitor. Um, and SVRI is the systemic vascular resistance. It's the same, it's, you know, it's the same, it, that's the resistance of your vascular system. And that is also a good number that can help guide things. So I do use these monitors. I think they're helpful. I don't think you have to have them I think there are other things you can use, like getting an SVO2 and calculating a fixed score and a lactate. I mean, you could put a central line in and an arterial line and get, get SVO2s and a lactate. You can trend those things and then see how fluid responsive someone is. And that can also help, you know, what perfusion is and know what a, someone's cardiac, cardiac index is. And so there's many ways you can go about it. Um, people can be dogmatic and think that their way is best, and it's not. I don't think there's a way that's better than another way. All right. Next question, uh, Chiante0620, have you ever dealt with sickle cell patients like myself? Um, I have dealt with sickle cell, not a whole lot. Um, it, it, uh, so it's sickle cell anemia and sickle cell crisis uh, affects mostly um, black people um, of African descent because of a, uh, because, so sickle cells, literally you have red blood cells that are shaped like sickles rather than being nice and round. And it, it's protected of malaria. So that's why it stayed in the gene pool, because it helped protect people from dying of malaria. Um, but unfortunately, when people get dehydrated, when they have this, they can get dehydrated, and they can have pain crises where the sickle cells don't flow very well. And you can get acute chest pain syndrome, and it can be deadly. Can it, and it's probably one of the most painful things that a person can experience. These people are in extreme amount of pain. And then there's the, the you know people that have sickle cell disease and they're usually black Americans, where I live in America, usually black. And then uh, these patients have to deal with the, um, the stereotype of, you know, black people being drug seekers and not maybe not being drug seekers necessarily, but also but not being believed that they're in pain. Right. So they have to deal with that stigma, which I do think is real. Um, so they so it's a double hit. Right. They're, they're not they may not be believed that they're in pain and then they have to deal with, you know, the, the racial stigma, you know, rape, just frank racism against them. I'm not saying that happens everywhere, but it happens. Believe me. Um, but I don't. I don't. I don't have sickle cell patients a lot where I practice. I have had in, in in other cities, and the rule is believe them and give them as much pain medications that they need. That's that's it. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, keep, you know definitely keep them hydrated and make sure they're on a, uh, what's the medication hydroxyurea that that can help with sickling. But I'm no expert on sickle cell anemia, so I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to say anything wrong. Sounds stupid, right? Um, okay, here's another question from Grand Farley 760 Have you heard of Japanese yu poisoning with the intent of self-harm? How did you treat the patient? We had one come in and they mentioned using ECMO. So I haven't heard of that, uh, particularly, I not that, but, uh, you know, suicide attempts with certain drugs can definitely warrant uh, ECMO. 
the two that come to mind are, uh, uh, well, no, I guess the one, one that comes to mind is Wellbutrin. Um, people that overdose on that can have cardiovascular collapse. Um, and they can they can die and go to cardiac arrest really quickly. So someone with a really bad Wellbutrin um, uh, overdose, possibly they, they may need to be, and they're often young people, um, they may need to be emergently placed on ECMO. Um, lithium is also another one. Not They don't need to be put on ECMO, but if someone has lithium overdose, they need to put them on dialysis immediately or, or they can die because the only way to get rid of that excess lithium is through, di through dialysis. There's a lot of... Um, medications unfortunately that people can uh use to commit suicide um but i'll just leave that at that at that, that all right here's another question is there any this is from oh this is about a book k campion 19 is there any chance you've read gideon the ninth by tamson murray it's a great fantasy sci-fi and i'd love to hear your thoughts if you have it. so <laughs> i have read that book and i hated it <laughs> i hated it so much <laughs> So I'm sorry to burst this person's bubble. I probably won't answer this on TikTok because I don't want to bum them out. It's a very popular book. Maybe you, if you're listening to this, you may have heard of it. A very, very talented writer, Gideon the, so it's called Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir, M-U-I-R. And she's a very good writer, very good writing. I, I, but I absolutely hated the book. Um, I thought it was asking way too, I thought there was way too many characters. They didn't, I, the plotting was crazy. It, that, there was, anyway, it just wasn't a good book and I hated it. <laughs> Which I, you don't hate a lot of books that I read. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, let's see. Um, here's one from uh, Custom K9. Have you experienced seeing a patient's veins run away from the IV needle when you're doing one of the ultrasound? It happened with mine a lot. Uh, so running away, I wouldn't describe it as that way. I think veins can roll as you're trying. That's probably what this person means. Um, as you're trying to putting in an IV is actually it takes a lot of uh, practice to get good at it. Like someone who's good at putting an IV, they make it look real easy. Um, but it takes practice. You gotta, you gotta flatten the, you have to make the vein taut with your one hand, make it nice and taut so it doesn't roll. That's key. You, with my thumb, I, I, I kind of put my hand on the skin where the vein is and I pull it to make the skin taut. And then with the other hand, with the, with the needle, you bring it in as parallel as possible to the vein and you poke, and you poke just a little bit, you start to see some blood come in, and then you then you advance like a millimeter to make sure that the catheter is also within the vessel before you thread it off. If you poke and you get blood, sometimes you just have the bevel of the needle in the vessel, but not the catheter. And then if you try to thread it off, it'll infiltrate. So that's very, very important. Um, yeah, so there you have it. All right, uh, let's move on to the book. Um, this book I read I, probably like two years ago. It's called Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein. He's the creator of Vox News Channel, V-O-X, Vox. Uh, it's a pretty good book. This was published in Jan I don't know, January 2021. Um, no, no, that's not when it was published. It's January in January 2020. Um, it's about 300 pages. It's a simple read, uh, not too long. And basically, client explains the polarization of American politics in a really accurate and concise way. The first thing I have to say is read this book. It's good. I would follow it up with, yeah talking to you read this book any every american should read this book or a book similar to it now i don't believe klein has come up with anything entirely new with this book but the, the way he presents the information is really palatable it's concise and it's very easy to understand if you're even remotely politically aware you've probably had theories about american polarization kicking around in your head 
but maybe you haven't been able to like fully articulate those ideas. And I, I think Klein does that in this book. I think he, he articulates what we're all kind of thinking, but can't quite say it. Um, he argues that once upon a time, there wasn't that big of a difference between the two American political parties. In fact, politicians in the 1950s were begging for more polarization so that voters had more choice because they actually were, they were people were, they were kind of the same on either side of the aisle. It was extremely common to split your ticket and vote blue and then red and then blue as you go down. At the same time, the media had to appeal to wide audiences because viewers had little choice in where they got their news. So media had to stay broad to stay engaging. Identity was less intertwined with politics. What happened since then is a stacking of identities, a lining up of personal identities. As media fractured and started to chase different ideologies, they realized they could shrink their audience and still stay relevant and profitable in the age of social media. So to be a Republican or a Democrat these days is much more about who you, um, who a person feels they are at the very core of their being. When engaging in a debate, it is no longer an argument over ide ideology or policy, but it, it's an argument over identity. And here's the tricky thing. You cannot change someone's identity, identity through discourse. That's why there's, you, get into, you run into so many walls talking to people. Everything is about identity. Modern politicians understand this really well. They know that negative partisanship has a much more galvanizing force than positive partisanship, meaning saying everything is bad about the other opposition party is much more galvanizing than being positive about your own party. People care about winning. I know it's very basic, but they do. They care about their team winning and being on the winning team. The motivation is that the other team loses. Sports mentality is most definitely a play. Because of this, facts have become an impotent tool in the hands of like a do-good debater. Facts don't really matter, right? You've noticed that? All people see will see the facts only within the boundaries of their identity, only to confirm their own biases. Klein puts forth some good research about how our cognition actually suffers when our political identities get involved. And that doesn't matter if, if, you're, if you're on the left or the right. Your, uh, your ide ideology uh, makes you make cognitive errors. It does. And there's some good studies he talks about. Um, but that doesn't mean the identity is symmetrical in the two parties. The Republican Party is clearly, in my opinion, a more homogenous identity than the Democratic Party. Uh, I think. I could be challenged on that. And I think there's some exceptions. In this way, Republican politicians can dive deeper into their base of mostly white Americans and tug on those feelings to get them to hate the other side pretty easily. Democrats, on the other hand, are uh, a more diverse coalition, which must appeal more widely to the base or risk alienating their own party. Since Republicans don't need to appeal to more people, only to the land that those less people occupy, they can maintain national power as a majority despite representing a shrinking majority uh, uh, or minority of American identity. The change in American dem demography is what has driven the polarization, is what Klein argues. White population is shrinking, brown population is growing. These are like you know tectonic forces that are driving people deeper into their identities to protect, to create a false zero-sum political landscape. I could go on, uh, and I think the book does. It, what I've discussed is, I think, is an oversimplification, and I think the book is an oversimplification, but I think it's a good model about what, what probably is going on. Uh, but I do think it is more complex than, than what I've talked about here and what the book talks about. But if you're interested in, you know, why things are so bad, 
you know, why they're so polarized right now. This is a great book to start with. And there's other more, there's other books to read about this topic. So this is called Why We're Polarized by Ezra Klein. All right. Um, I'm going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Uh, send me an email at icudoctorecmo at gmail.com if you have any topics or suggestions you want me to do a podcast about. Um, and uh, my handle on TikTok is icudoctor. And I'm on Instagram at icudoctortiktok. Check me out. And uh, please read, read review, share, and uh, I'll try to get back to you soon. Thanks.